Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. Thanks for stopping by. Not to get too weepy on you, but a good portion of my childhood energy was spent learning how to hide or go unnoticed by others. At school, kids were cruel to me and each other, and I, of course, could be just as cruel back. Even church was not always a safe place for kids. Given a lot of families dropped off their troubled children on the front steps in hopes someone would straighten them out. As soon as the adults were not looking, the psychological cannibalism began. But at home, in the woods behind our house, I did have a little peace. There, every day, I would by myself explore, climb, build, and dig. But then one day, my dad unexpectedly brought home a brand new Apple IIc computer. At first, I played with some games and learning programs that the computer store threw in. But then, an older boy at school found out I had an Apple and invited me over to his home. This guy was named Barry, and he was the perfect combination of new wave and geek. Flamboyantly, stylistically dressed with a floppy disk carrying case accessory. He lent me all kinds of programs and games that would forever change the course of my life. And amongst them were these things called text adventure games. In them you could do all the activities I had done in the woods except with the addition of finding priceless treasures, meeting strange creatures, and of course getting attacked by evil monsters. My imagination was fired up. I got to explore other worlds, both real and theoretical, and I learned to solve puzzles and think through problems logically. Well, my guest today, back by the woodpile, is a historian of those very games. Aaron A. Reed is an author, blogger, and game designer who wrote the book on the computer language that folks who design text adventures use today. Mr. Reed will give us some snapshots of the history of the games, the industry and individuals that produced them, and share some of his own adventures while creating games. First of all, explain to folks who have no idea what we're talking about, what is a text adventure? Yeah, so a text adventure is basically a computer game without graphics that's basically using texts and words and language specifically um, to tell a story. And uh, they're actually some of the oldest kinds of computer games. So way back in the 1970s, people started making them. Um, And in the 80s, they were commercially popular because it just kind of became the first dominant form of computer gaming, essentially. Kind of had a decline, but then in the 90s, a bunch of amateurs and fans kind of rediscovered that and started making, you know, what new things can we do with this medium? And because it's so, they're so easy to make compared to games that involve graphics and sound and the multimedia, just one person can make one. Um, they really became this interesting kind of platform for amateurs and indies to try interesting kind of experiments with interactive storytelling. Um, and they've kind of survived through to the present day. So I should tell you, I live in Kentucky. And about an hour from where I lived was kind of the the setup for this whole thing. Uh, so talk about Excellent. how this came about in, in Kentucky. Kind of what's remembered today as like the first text adventure uh, was created originally by a caver who was embarked in this 
um, kind of multi-year project to map and explore the kind of network of caves in Kentucky uh, around Mammoth Cave. And a lot of people had suspected for years that all of these individual cave systems were linked together, but no one had really actually kind of proven it by mapping and exploring and making those connections. And so this guy, Will Crowther, in the early 70s, he and his wife at the time uh, were part of a bunch of these expeditions. Um, and his wife, Pat Crowther, actually was part of the final connection expedition that connected two of these huge cave systems. And that officially made Mammoth Cave the longest cave system in the world, which is pretty cool. So not long after that, though, uh, the two of them kind of uh, were having problems in their marriage. They were looking to get a divorce. In the next year or two, they had two daughters. Will started, uh, he was working with computers at BBN, actually working on some of the earliest internet stuff. And he started uh, thinking it would be interesting to make like a little simulation of cave exploring on my computer. So when my daughters come, when I have them for the weekend, I can show them, you know, what, what daddy and mom used to do together. So he made this actually in a lot of ways, a really accurate simulation of a part of the cave that the two of them had explored. And his daughters were into it and his uh, coworkers at work were into it. But then he kind of eventually kind of got bored with it and just kind of abandoned it. But what he did was he put it on a public directory on the ARPANET, which was sort of the you know earliest version of the internet. And it sat there for a while. And then a year later, this different guy, Don Woods, across the country at Stanford, um, found it and said, wow, this is a really cool idea. And he started extending it and basically turning it into a more of a game than just kind of a, a pure simulation. He added like a score and he added more treasures and monsters and things like that. And then that version sort of became wildly popular and was sort of one of the first big computer game successes. Um, it was this really transporting kind of magical adventure, um, kind of, you know, making a case that computers could actually kind of like, as a form of entertainment, like transport you into another world for a while. So that's a really cool story. Um, and Mammoth Cave is a really interesting, it's interesting to me that like the dawn of computer gaming essentially began in a cave, which we think of as like a very, you know, primitive, old, ancient kind of part of the human experience going into a cave, exploring a cave, but that kind of provided this spark. So uh, yeah, I've always been really interested in that story. And I'll go ahead and say it in Kentucky of all places, because we've not been known for our technology or <laughs> your cutting edge. Uh, but uh, only our fried chicken. So eventually this would lead to it being published. And now you have to uh, excuse me because I, I get fuzzy on some of these facts. So there is this colossal cave adventure, right? And is that the like the updated version or the that uh, Woods did? Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, okay. And that basically, because the notion of like copywriting software or even charging for it was still so new, but neither uh, of those two guys ever really even thought about, you know, that being something they could make money off of. So it was just kind of freely available on the ARPANET. And tons of different people kind of cloned it, made their own versions. And a lot of the kind of earliest personal computer software was basically unauthorized clones of Adventure. Um, and even Zork, which Infocom what sort of became their first thing, one of the biggest uh, text adventure publishers of the 80s. Zork is kind of in a lot of ways a remake or, or maybe even a ripoff if you're not feeling very generous of Adventure. It has like a ton of the same tropes and even rooms and stuff in the early parts. So. So yeah, a, a lot of versions of Adventure or Colossal Cave Adventure or variants on that um, became uh, early popular games for a lot of platforms. So you mentioned Zork. I think that was probably my introduction to all this. And I, I would assume maybe it's one of the, the biggest games of all time in that, in that genre, but you, you could correct me. 
And of course, this leads us to the company Infocom. So let's talk about them for a minute. Like how did they get into this? How did they uh, think that this could be profitable and all that? Yeah. Um, so that story is interesting too. You might notice I'm, I'm full of these stories right now. <laughs> it's because I'm working on a book about the history of text um, games. So yeah. I, I can I can rattle them off all day. Yeah. So Zork uh, was four grad students at MIT. Um, who played adventure and just like went wild for it. And they have a great quote where they say something like, um, once they solved it, um, they said it was like finishing a Sherlock Holmes mystery and wanting to read more because it was so good, but there weren't any more because no one had written any more yet. Mm -hmm. um, so they started saying, well, let's make our own adventure. And the word Zork, there are a couple conflicting stories about the origin of it, but apparently it was kind of a, a word uh, floating around the MIT campus at that point that you could just sort of use in place of a lot of other words, including maybe offensive words. So mm -hmm. if you stubbed your toe, you could say, oh, Zork or something, right? Um, so they just used that as a placeholder name, as a file name when they started working on this, this game. And um, they spent a long time fiddling with it. And But the interesting thing was that at that point, people were still mostly working with computers via mainframes, which were, you know, cost tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and they had what now seem like fairly small, but were then really generous allotments of memory and disk space and stuff. When personal computers came around, though, they were just like microscopic compared to what the mainframes could support. So like 1% or less of the storage capacity in a lot of cases. So um, when the Zork guys thought, well, maybe maybe there's money in this, maybe we could like found a company and sell this. They had this challenge of how to fit this huge game with hundreds of rooms um, onto a computer platform that could maybe only store like 16K of data in memory at once. So they actually solved a lot of technical challenges to try to efficiently compress text, to try to strip out some of the original game's complexity, but keep the spirit of it. And um, if you know Infocom, you might know there's actually a Zork 1, a Zork 2, and a Zork 3. And for the most part, those are all actually just pieces of that original mainframe uh -huh. game. They had to kind of slice it up into bits in order to fit all of it. Um, onto you know uh, what computers at the time could handle, um, but yeah, that was you're right. That was a huge success. Um, it went on sale at the end of 1980, and it was on some platforms still the best selling game in 1985. So a five year run, kind of on the top of the bestseller charts, is pretty incredible. Well, eventually, those games, obviously, the market would change so much and fluctuate, and Infocom would become no more. And I know there's a kind of a drama behind all that. Didn't Activision acquire it at one point? Yeah, I think in 87, Activision yeah. bought them. Yeah. Yep. And I guess famously, it depends who tells the story, like Activision didn't know what to do with it, or, you know, you had the suits making decisions. But probably they would have phased out anyway because you had more advanced things like you had graphics that were coming about. Like I think like King's Quest was the first one I remember thinking like, oh man, I'm never going back to those text adventure <laughs> games now. But yeah. uh, And there were some other developments. Talk about that real quick if you don't mind. One interesting thing that I actually learned researching this book is that um, there's kind of a, a, a popular sense that like text adventures are the only kinds of games computers could do for a while. And then once graphics came around, people moved over to graphics. But that's not entirely true because graphics were kind of around from the beginning. And actually, even when the, the Zork guys were founding Infocom, people were telling them, 
you know, you're crazy. No one's going to want to play games without graphics, right? Like mm-hmm. it's too, it's too late for that, or, or it's mm-hmm. not, you know, that's never going to work. So the deck was always kind of stacked against text games as far as, you know, them being flashy demos and, and the thing that was going to be in the front of sales shirts, right? And it was, there were graphics, but it was pretty much, they were so limited that they weren't things you wanted to show off, right? Like the Radio Shack or wherever you were right. selling computers. So as soon as graphics got good enough that they became the good demo materials, then those kinds of games kind of took the forefront of, you know, what was on the show floor, what people wanted to buy to impress their friends, all that kind of stuff. Even as early as, you know, the early, like 83 or 84, um, you know, there were kind of pretty worrying signs about text adventures being a profitable market share. <laughs> but yeah, by the end of the 80s, they were they were pretty much commercially perceived as over. So yeah, I think Infocom, Activision shut them down in, I think, late 89 sometime around then and for a couple of years there really weren't a whole lot of new um text adventure games being made now would you differentiate between the rpgs the early rpgs for example like ultima and i guess later like bard's tale and wizardry these are ones i remember are they the same are they different are they cousins yeah cousins i think is a good way to put it because they definitely share a lot of DNA, you know, as far as as who was making them and and where those two genres came from. And it's funny because a lot of, you know, we have sort of terms that we use today, like text adventure or like interactive fiction, and it took those terms a while to evolve. And if you look at a lot of like early 80s, um, like game strategy books and stuff, like they didn't really have those terms yet. So there's a thing like the Zork guys, I think, called what they were making a uh, it was like a CFS or something, a computerized fantasy simulation. Oh. And they kind of lumped it in with things that we would call RPGs now, right? That were more heavy on stats and stuff. And it's interesting, like even Zork actually has some sort of like RPG-like mechanics because there's sort of a combat system with a chance to hit that changes based on what weapon you have and stuff. Mm-hmm. And text adventures would kind of move away from that kind of more, you know, simulating combat things in favor of focusing on more story kind of stuff. And RPGs kind of went the other direction, right? Like building up, you know, big, uh, complicated systems to do fighting and magic and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, the history is definitely intertwined. Um, and then there's roguelikes, right? Which is a whole third genre that's based on using text to kind of be surrogate graphics, right? So you're drawing a top-down view of a dungeon yeah. using little ASCII characters, right, to represent movement and stuff. So there's all these different little genres that kind of, you know, have this interrelated history, but kind of evolved into their own things, which is really interesting. From a personal point of view, what is your earliest memories of these games? Yeah, so I'm actually on paper a little too young to have grown up with text adventures, but I sort of um, lucked into it because uh, as a kid, I was always kind of a really voracious reader. And um, when I was maybe six or seven, uh, so this would have been um, uh, mid to late 80s. Um, my uncle got me a uh, computer game that was actually a collection called Golden Oldies. Um, and it's funny now to think about there being Golden Oldies of computer games in the 80s, but there were. Um, and they were, uh, it was Eliza, the famous chatbot, um, Conway's Game of Life, which is like a little simulation of uh, uh, cells that grow and die um, based on rules. Uh, oh, Pong, of course, it has sure. to be Pong. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then Adventure was the fourth one. And I just totally fell in love with Adventure, and I played it over and over again. And then, you know, I went out with my allowance money um, to see what other text games I could buy. And that was kind of the dying days of Infocom, so you could get them for cheaper because they were kind of starting to get, you know, remaindered and, and uh, put on sale. Uh, you know, and I played a lot of graphic adventure games too, but I was really into the kind of puzzle 
style game and the you know games that kind of took you into interesting cool fantasy worlds mm-hmm. um and then like everyone else i kind of stopped playing them through the 90s and then i think around the year 2000 ish i discovered um this online community on the usenet news groups which were still a thing then um and there are two groups um rec.arts.infiction and rec.games.infiction where a bunch of people were, uh, I discovered making new games, um, in some cases using the exact same engines as like Infocom has, had used for Zork, which is where Inform comes in. Yeah, and that, that was just so cool to me that people were still making these games. So I started playing a bunch, eventually I started making some, and yeah, uh, that turned into a really big part of my life is, is being part of that community and you know making new interactive fiction games, helping promote games other people's make other people make um so yeah that's kind of the the backstory of that right on january 24th apple computer will introduce macintosh and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984 let's talk about the language and how these games were made Uh, obviously when uh, like the first adventure game was made, there wasn't a what we would call now a game engine for making a text adventure game. But eventually, uh, Infocom would develop something to make the make it um, a little more I don't want to say easier, but more pliable. I, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for here. But so talk about that that history of the coding behind these games. So there were actually kind of two parts to to Infocom's game creation that both were kind of part of their success. So. I talked earlier about like the challenge of even fitting those games onto those early home computers. Um, and part of the challenge there with that commercialization was that there were so many competing home computers on the market, right? Things hadn't kind of standardized on like, you know, Mac and windows like we have now. Um, so if you wanted to get as much market share as possible, you basically needed your game. You needed to sell your game in like, you know, up to 10 or 15 different versions for all these different incompatible platforms. And obviously, if you had to rewrite your game's engine and port each game you made to each of those platforms, that would just be a huge time sink and waste of time. Um, so Infocom was one of several companies that basically developed an early virtual machine where they're like, we're going to make up a format for running a text adventure that can read a kind of definition file of what a particular game is. And then rather than having to port each of our games to all these platforms, we just have to port that runner to each of those platforms. Um, and that thing they made was called the Z machine, uh, and Z stood for Zork. So it was basically like a machine designed to run Zork. So they also then made a programming language that they called Zill, the Zork implementation language, um, to write stuff in. But both of those things were basically proved really smart and a key part of their success. Um, so then if you flash forward to the 90s when amateurs are, you know, there's no longer new text games being made, they're like, how, how do we make these? Um, uh, the advantage of that virtual machine format, the Z machine, was that you could just report it to the platforms that were big at that time. And then not only did you have access to all those old games, uh, you had kind of a platform that would be stable and you could kind of keep developing new stuff on and would be kind of both future proof and past proof, if you will, right? So uh, Inform, the, the language, um, came out of um, an effort by a bunch of people to reverse engineer kind of Infocom's formats. Uh, so not only the Z machine, but then also how do we create something that compiles to the Z machine, right? How do we make 
what what language can we write in that kind of inherently makes sense for the data structures involved in text adventures um, and sort of makes it easy and natural to write those sorts of things. So, so Inform looks very different than Zill, but both of them are kind of compiling down to the same stuff under the hood, basically. Eventually, yeah. you yourself will become personally involved in updating the language. Is that correct? So I haven't worked on the language itself, but for a while I wrote a book on it. And then for okay. a long time, I was one of, um, I, w I was submitting a ton of bug reports and stuff because I was working on at the time, one of the biggest projects that had ever been created in it. So I think, uh, I probably filed, you know, something close to a hundred or 120 <laughs> bug reports and had a lot of, uh, back and forth with the creator uh, of the language, Graham Nelson, uh, during that time. So yeah, um, tangentially involved. You wrote a book. Uh, talk about how that came about. Right. So the book really actually came directly out of this game. So I did not intend to do this at all, but I found myself kind of at the end of, uh, in 2009, um, having written uh, the biggest game that had ever <laughs> been created in Inform 7, um, and also according to some estimates, what was at that time the, the biggest text adventure of any kind that had ever been made. Um, that particular record uh, was uh, supplanted pretty quickly by people who are even more ambitious than me. But <laughs> um, Inform 7, which was kind of a, a new version of the language that focused on kind of a more natural syntax, and we can get into that later if uh, people are interested, but um, uh, it came out in 2006. And so I think I was one of the, I was just kind of in the right place where I was really I was really into making text adventures at that point. Um, so right when that language came out, I had had this idea for something and I started working on this big project. And I think I was kind of just one of the earliest people to really push that new language to its its uh, limitations. Um, and by big here, I mean, there were something like 400,000 words of source code, which is you know three or four megabytes worth of, um, of code. So it's a, it's a hefty chunk mm -hmm. um, for an amateur project. Um, but, uh, but where the book came from was I had released this game and people were pretty into it. Um, and I got uh, just an email out of the blue from an editor at a book publisher who did kind of like computer, you know, uh, programming language manuals and things like that, asking me if I wanted to write a book on Inform 7 for them. Um, and I at first just assumed this was a scam because right. I thought, A, like, there's not a big enough market to publish a book on this weird, obscure language, right? Mm -hmm. That can't be true. And B, like in my experience, uh, editors don't just email authors asking them to write books for them, right? Like right. It usually has to go the other way around. Um, so I think it took me a couple of days before I got back and I, I did like Google this person and see if they actually worked for this company and everything. Well, I was kind of right because the story turned out to be that someone else had pitched a book on Inform 7 to them and got them excited about it and then dropped out of the project. So they were basically trying to find a replacement author uh -huh. to take over um, mm -hmm. this this project. Um, but they didn't leave behind any notes or anything. So I was, I was basically starting from scratch. But because I had the language so in my head at that point, after kind of working extensively in it for, you know, three years, I thought, OK, yeah, I think I can do this. I think I can, you know, basically figure out what order to explain these concepts in, how to go through, you know, how to break this, you know, big, complicated thing down into a series of steps that I could teach someone. Um, and, yeah, that's kind of the origins of that. I know on some of the message boards on uh, in fiction you mentioned that you wanted to update this book at some point. Is that still going to happen? It is, yeah. So um, 
the book's been out of print for a couple of years um and people have noticed uh there's this weird thing on sites like amazon and stuff where the there are these like bidding algorithms that the rarer a book is the more they increase the price just sure. to see if they can get anyone to pay for it so these algorithms have bid up the price on the book to sometimes like over a thousand dollars which is ridiculous and obviously i don't see any of that money so it's not it's not something i'm especially excited about right. but basically what that means is it's been a while since any new copies have been available right some of the prices I've seen, I thought, man, it'd be cheaper if I just bought the Rosetta Stone <laughs> yeah. than the, yeah, no kidding. than this book. Yeah, yeah, and obviously it's not a good situation for me, right? Like, I would love it to still be available and cheap for anyone who wants it. A couple of years ago, after it had been out of print for a bit, um, I started trying to get the rights back from the publisher, which was something that was originally in my contract. If it went out of print, I could have the rights revert to me. But I think this is probably an option that not a lot of authors exercise because it took a really long time to work through the the uh, the figure out the right people to talk to and get them have them get back to me and stuff. Um, I think this was kind of, you know, uh, during COVID, too. So the publisher may have been short staffed. But mm-hmm. anyway, I finally went through that process and I did get the rights reverted to me. But part of the difficulty well, there's a couple things. So one is that I have the rights to the text, but not to sort of like the cover design or the layout or anything. Mm-hmm. So to re, I can't just kind of re-upload the PDF. I would have to kind of redo the layout and kind of make a new um, version of the presentation of it legally. But then the other complication, of course, is that Inform has changed uh, in the 10 years since the book came out. So, and um, most recently, there's just been a new update after a couple of years of a big behind the scenes project. So it would definitely take some time to go through um the the in the book it kind of builds up a big example project so go through that you know bit by bit see what bits of syntax have been updated maybe there's more elegant ways to do certain things now than there were in the older version of the language um so it definitely requires some work um i i want to do that because there's been especially this year it feels like there's been a lot of renewed interest and what i might end up doing is is doing something like a quick and dirty pass like a you know 1.5 edition or something that's basically you know what's the minimum change needed to get it to compile in the latest version um, minimum layout put that up just so it's accessible Um, and then when i have time go back and do kind of a proper second edition Um, but yeah i'm I'm hoping that can happen this year it's definitely i've heard a lot of people express interest so i'd like to do it in your book that you published uh, you got a little bit of a forward by uh, Don Woods, the legend, I guess you would yeah. say. So how did that come about? And uh, did you get to meet the fellow? Or Yeah, there, there was an interesting coincidence of timing. So um, right around the time I was finishing up the book was when uh, this uh, really great documentary about text adventures called Get Lamp came yes. out uh, by Jason yeah. Scott. He was uh, at, I think it was at PAX East that year, the Penny Arcade Expo. Um, he was there and a bunch of other interactive fiction people were there to kind of have a little meetup. And I think in conjunction with that, or maybe it was just unrelated, it was a PAX thing, I forget. But anyway, there was a panel with a bunch of kind of text game luminaries. So Don Woods was there. There were some Infocom people there. So yeah, I did briefly get to meet uh, Don Woods uh, at that event, which was really great. Um, And then not long after that, I was finishing up the book and I was thinking, oh, it'd be cool to have a foreword by someone interesting. And I thought, Oh, maybe, maybe, maybe Don remembers meeting me. Maybe he'd be willing to to write this. Um, And he did. And that was super cool. I couldn't have, you know, having the person who essentially invented the whole genre you're writing about, uh, write an intro to your book is about, you know, the highest uh, uh, accolade you could imagine getting. So that was a real honor for me. For those parents who realize that $600 isn't too much to spend to expand their child's world, Radio Shack has the perfect gift. The TRS-80 computer 
the most significant investment a parent can make. Programs for your child's education or your business, finance, and home use. Let your children discover tomorrow's technology today. The TRS-80, the biggest name in little computers. Only at Radio Shack, a Tandy company. Now, you talked about for a while there, you, you had the, the trophy for longest text adventure game for a while (laughs) dubious distinction but yes (laughs) right yeah but uh was it blue lacuna is that correct yeah that's right yep okay talk about the creation of that game and you know why you decided to do that particular game with that particular plot and setting and all that so i'd always been a big fan of mist uh the mist series oh yeah graphic adventures um i really loved those games i really loved the way they really captured kind of just the fun of exploration, right? Like being dropped in a new, beautiful, weird environment and having to figure out, you know, why is this place here? What's going on? What, who are the people who lived here? Um, all that kind of stuff, you know, without necessarily having to shoot things along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I had done a couple smaller text adventures and I thought, okay, I want to do something like Mist. I want to do like a big kind of, in a lot of ways, in the classic adventure game mold, right? Like a big open map, um, lots of puzzles, lots of interesting things to do. But I also kind of wanted to, there were a couple things that I had not seen a lot of amateur text games do that I wanted to try to do. And one of those was sort of like a really dynamic um, character in the game who, you know, you could have conversations with, would respond to the way the state changed, would wander around the map and interact in the environment and do stuff. So I wanted a story that involved this other character and I wanted to put a lot of time into making that relationship feel interesting and, and real. And then the other thing that I was big on, into at the time is um, text adventures all have this kind of problem, especially for modern audiences, which is that they can be pretty hard to learn how to play um, because they descend from this kind of 70s, 80s time frame when the dominant computer interface was a command line where you typed commands. Mm-hmm. Uh, text adventures have the same kind of interface and you just have to type commands. Uh, and if you are familiar with the conventions and know how that works, um, you know, you can you can figure out what commands are likely to work. Um, but if you're not familiar with that kind of interface or that kind of game, uh, you can just have no idea what you're supposed to type or what's going to be understood or kind of how to operate this little story machine. So I was really interested in ways of making that parser-based, that command line interface more accessible to new people who weren't familiar with interactive fiction. One of the things that I did with that game was devise the system where there were basically three different colors of highlighted words that would show up. And you could just type that word without anything else to do sort of the most obvious thing with that. So objects, excuse me, if you just typed an object you saw in the the environment, it would describe it for you. Um, If you type the name of a direction, it would move in that direction. And Blue Lakina had compass directions, but you could also toggle relative directions. So rather than north, south, west, you would you know go towards the mountain or go down to the beach or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third thing was conversation topics. So when you're talking to a character in the game, certain words are highlighted and you can type that word to sort of steer the conversation in that direction. Mm-hmm. And my hope was that this would sort of make it more accessible to new people because you can't play all of the game with just those three highlighted words, but you can get a good ways into it. Um, you can... Uh, you know, it kind of gives you some some training wheels to get started, basically, and how to interact with that kind of game. All of those things together, and especially both the big open world and the very reactive NPC, proved uh, to be really challenging, surprising nobody. <laughs> um, uh, originally, I thought it was maybe going to be like a half a year project, and it ended up being um, more than three years of work before uh, before the whole game was done. So, And a lot of those were really intensive um 
you know, like pretty much all of my free time for a long time was being, being, uh, put into that, that project. So it was a big chunk of my life. Um, but I was pretty pleased with the outcome. You know, there's, there's a lot of things obviously that aren't perfect. Um, but I felt like I accomplished a lot of the goals kind of, I set out to do, and I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that it, that people still find it and enjoy playing it, uh, today, which is very cool. Yeah. I was just about to ask you what the reaction was from people that played it. It's interesting. The first reaction I kind of, uh, in hindsight, I messed up a little bit the the uh, the debut because um, uh, so one of the things that I do now in the interactive fiction community also is run an event called the Spring Thing, which is a kind of annual online festival for new uh, interactive fiction games. Um, and part of the reason I ran that is because I had a lot of good experiences, um, or I should say, part of the reason I I volunteered to take that over when the old organizer um, passed the baton. Uh, was I'd had a bunch of good experiences releasing games in that when I was just kind of starting out. For Blue Lacuna, I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to release it in the spring thing. But it wasn't uh, It wasn't going to be, I realized eventually it wasn't going to be done in time, but I had put so much into like this goal that I, I really wanted to show something in the spring thing. So I thought, well, okay, I'll have it be a, a sneak peek. It'll be like a sneak preview of Blue Lacuna um, in the spring thing. Um, so it was just, I forget how much it was, maybe the first half of the game, maybe less than that. Um, it was substan- It was a substantial chunk of it, um, mm-hmm. but not the whole thing. Um, and for some reason, that really rubbed some people, at least the wrong, wrong way. They were like, wow, this game isn't even finished. Like, you yeah. know, what, what's up with this? Um, and it actually, uh, it actually, there were only a couple of games in that your spring thing, but it placed last, <laughs> which oh, man. was kind of, kind of <laughs> discouraging. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but there were a lot of people who, who really saw the potential in it and said, wow, this is really ambitious. Um, so it was, it was still a net good experience, but I think I find that kind of a, an amusing little footnote to Blue Lacuna's history as it ended up being, you know, pretty well known and pretty well acclaimed and it's, it's debut, uh, in its debut, it lost the competition it entered. It's <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. You just didn't take your ball and go home. Like, well, <laughs> screw y'all. <laughs> Kara. When Andrea Barber grows up, she's going to publish a newspaper. But then that's what she's doing right now. Kids are going to freak when they see this. Chris Stahl wants to pilot a jet plane. In fact, he's already flying one. And when Hakeem grows up, he's going to be a record producer. A child with an Apple II computer quickly learns there's no use putting off until tomorrow what you can do today. So I wanted to ask you some uh, philosophical questions. Yes. Obviously, humans love games, right? And I, I can't remember the philosopher, even the exact quote, but it was somebody had said something like, humans are either going to make war or they're going to play games. It's either or, right? <laughs> so why do you think, first of all, why do we play games at all? And why are they um, more enjoyable than real life? And, of course, what's kind of ironic these days there is a lot of life simulation games like where you could uh, you know become a different person or even experience some mundane aspects of life within a game so what's your thoughts on all that so in this in this book which came from a blog series i did um that basically looks at the last 50 years since 1971 uh to 2021 um of text games um I cover this huge swath of different kinds of games, but all kind of looking at this question of like, why is, why is telling a, why is a game without graphics, a computer game without graphics interesting, right? Um, and there's a surprising range of things that fit into that. And one of them is um, the game a lot of people remember playing from a few years ago about building paper clips, um, universal paper clips. 
which was a browser game that was sort of uh, ridiculously popular for a while. Um, and when I was researching that, the creator of that game had this really interesting quote about why it's worth he's a games professor he's an academic and and the question for him was like why are games worth studying right um and he had this great story about so like when you look at a painting you're sort of focused on the act of looking you know in a way that you are in your everyday life right you're sort of you're taking a moment and you're thinking like oh the colors are interesting and textures and uh perspective like this is how vision works this is what looking is like you're sort of focused on that moment right and he kind of has this theory that games are sort of like that for um, for certain kinds of like problem solving and uh, um, optimization problems that human fa- humans face. And there are ways you sort of like focus in on that um, and forget all of the sort of complexities of the real world where you're doing that stuff every day and have this kind of distilled, uh, simplified version of it. Um, and humans, you know, we've kind of evolved, right, to be really good at doing those things because that's the only way we can survive and be successful. So games kind of tie into this um, this loop where we really like problem solving, we really like exploration, we really like mastering our environment. Um, and when they present this kind of distilled, perfected format of that without consequences, right, right. Um, it obviously can be really addicting. Um, so I think that's definitely, there's something there. And I really like that analogy is a lot of the things we do as people like games uh, are like distilling complicated real world things down into these more understandable um, systems. Right. So that's definitely one, one facet of that. Um, I think too, like, you know, the original adventure discovered um, it's just really great to be like transported to a new place. Right. And um, uh, you know, text games don't have graphics, but text can still engage the imagination. Right. In the same way that reading for pleasure does. Um, so being being kind of like losing yourself in another world for a while is just really fun, <laughs> whether that's, um, you know, in a shooter game or a flight simulator or, uh, you know, a text adventure. So, right. Um, this is just me rambling, but I it's something I've been thinking about for years is why is there such an allure to uh, finding out something that we, we don't know or, what, or some, mm-hmm. maybe something's forbidden or going and seeing something we haven't seen? You think about, especially in American culture, the... Uh, there's this like rite of passage to go on a road trip, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of words or a lot of concepts in our language where they're not settled things. Like, for example, even in the Declaration of Independence, you notice how Jefferson says, like, you have a right to pursue happiness, which is, you know, that's that's not a, a settled thing or it's not stationary if you think about it. Do you ever think about those things? Like, you know, what's wrong with us? Is it from evolution possibly that, you know, we got to keep moving or we got we got to keep looking for stuff or I don't know. Yeah. Drive to explore. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, you think you hit on something when you kind of framed it as like secrets, right? Mm -hmm. We really like, you know, figuring things out, uncovering secrets. And yeah, I mean, maybe that comes from a drive of, you know, you know, if you better understand the world around you, you're more likely to be successful in it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, humans have sort of selected to become more and more inquisitive. Um, But I think for me personally, too, that's also like a thing I really love about text adventures and about um, games like Myst that are, you know, focused in more on those feelings of um, puzzle solving and and uncovering mysteries and answering um, questions, right? Um, That's just something I really enjoy doing. And I find that a lot more relaxing and enjoyable than a sort of, you know, reflex based action game for me personally. Right. Um, it's definitely exploration. I think it's just like one of the core 
verbs for me of what I look for when I want to play a game. Of course, every generation gets nostalgic. I, I remember like when I was a kid in the 80s that I, I guess it would have been my parents' generations. There was this advent of like oldies radio and they were having like organized like sock hops, so music from the 50s. And of course, when I became at a certain age, I started to look fondly back on the 80s, you know, and tried to reacquire things I had had back then and maybe explore things I had missed the first time. So again, even though I recognize that every generation does that, what really makes me uh, warm inside is when I find out like the students that I teach at the college, you will see them wearing like uh, clothes that reference bands from the 80s or even there is this like uh, retro fever that you know they were born like 20, 30 years after the fact and they're way into Pac-Man or, or going to an arcade that has that same experience or similar experience to what we grew up with. So do you think that the late 70s and the 80s were unique uh, or not? Or if so, why were they so exciting? Why, why do a lot of people look fondly on that time? Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot there. Um, yes. So yeah, I mean, you know, I think there's nostalgia for any previous generation. You know, that's always kind of been a thing, like you said. But I do think there is actually something kind of interesting about that period for games specifically because they were so new at the time, um, and uh, so many people were just sort of trying new things for the first time with no idea of whether it was going to work or not. So if you look back on especially the first half of the 80s, but even up through till the end, um, at the kind of commercial games um, big companies were releasing in the kind of first decade of the computer game industry existing, um, there were just all kinds of like weird, wild experiments that you could never get a huge publisher to release today because, um, you know, w what a computer game is supposed to be or a video game, console game, um, has become very codified, right? There are certain genres with certain rules. There are certain things that market research has demonstrated will sell better than other kinds of things. Um, so that was really a period where there was just this kind of rampant experimentation and you saw all kinds of weird hybrid interfaces, right? Like mm -hmm. what if, you know, text games, but a graphical window, what if you used a mouse to interact with the text? What if uh, you put all of the text for the game on a book that came in the box and then the computer game part was something different than the reading part. Um, there's just all of these, um, kind of attempts for people to figure out like what could even work and, and a sense that like maybe this new wild thing I'm trying could be the next huge thing, right? Like Zork became this massive best-selling game and pe people didn't know why necessarily, right? <laughs> like what about this weird, you know, from a computer program perspective, what about this weird program was so addictive? Um, just so many kind of new genres are being born, new, new things are being tried, um, so I think it is a genuinely interesting period, and and for for people who you know were born too late to experience it at the time, um, there definitely is value in going back on you know abandonware sites and and archive.org has a ton of old games you know via emulator um, and just poking around at some of the interesting things people were trying um, because yeah it's it's different and it's it's also different too than sort of like the modern indie game scene or retro game scene which is sort of you know, like in retro games, deliberately trying to capture, you know, the style of certain games uh, and indie games, you know, kind of have their own constraints, but they're often reacting against what the mainstream is doing. And But neither of those two things are sort of the same as, you know, being there 
with this new potential, just seeing what was going to happen. Roberta Williams and a cast of the world's most talented multimedia musicians, artists, and animators spin an enchanting interactive experience guaranteed to touch your entire family. In King's Quest VII, you'll enjoy graphics and sound of a caliber you've never seen or heard before on CD. So experience the magic with the most elaborate adventure game of all time. It seems like every genre, there's some kind of holy grail, something that got lost or something that was rumored about but never saw the light of day. I mean, whether it be actual archaeology or you know, uh, some lost book or, you know, any number of things. So in this text adventure world, uh, is there any kind of holy grails? Yeah, um, there's, yeah, there's a couple. Um, one of the good, the good ones that was, was one that I would have loved to have seen uh, was, um, so one of the collaborations Infocom did was with Douglas Adams, who wrote the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books. Sure. Um, and, uh, he and Steve Moretzky, who was one of their designers, uh, co-wrote a video game adaptation of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in text adventure form. And that now is seen as, you know, one of Infocom's, you know, most, it was, I think, their best-selling game ever. But but it's very fondly remembered, despite some yeah, frustrating puzzles. Also one of their most cruelest games. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it has a couple puzzles that are definitely a little questionable. There was originally going to be a sequel to that. Um, but basically, Douglas Adams had gotten so sick, like at the time, he was just kind of endlessly adapting uh, Hitchhikers into like, you know, different media. Uh, and he just didn't want to do it, basically. So they kind of had kicked around the idea of doing it themselves because they had the rights to. And they kind of had started a draft game. And a few years ago, like a leaked version of that early draft game uh, got posted. But it's it's so early, it doesn't really have much there. It's just kind of like a, you know, skeleton map layout of mm-hmm. stuff. But I would actually have been really interested to see what Infocom and Steve Moretzky specifically, who I think is a really brilliant designer, um, would have come up with without kind of the yoke of being directly chained to Douglas Adams, the creator of the property, right? Like having a little more creativity to be like, okay, we're in this weird universe, you know, with, with all of these zany things like um and we we don't have to kind of maybe stick as closely to the plot of this first famous book in the series like what can we kind of do with a little more more freedom there so that would have been really cool to see and then the other uh really interesting lost text game has a happy ending because it was recently uh finally released in its full form but uh also in the 80s another um uh kind of quote-unquote real author um thomas dish uh who's the sci-fi writer um, worked with Activision to make a game called Amnesia. He was not a game designer, and he knew he wasn't a game designer, right? But he basically wrote this, I want to say it was like a 600-page screenplay uh, or kind of interaction script uh, of this whole kind of weird, zany scenario about this guy who wakes up in a hotel room in Manhattan with no memory and finds out that he's involved in this weird plot involving all of this uh, kind of bizarre stuff. Um but he wrote this script that basically was like, you know, okay, well, here's what the player sees and they wakes up. If they do this, then this should happen. Mm-hmm. If they do this, then this should happen. And for someone who's not a game designer, the script is actually really interesting because he actually thinks through a lot of like unlikely situations and things might pe- people could try. But what happened is basically this was like way too big for, uh, again, like the, the computers at the time. So, you know, the 600 page script would have translated again to a couple megabytes of text, uh, without even the game engine or anything, just the text itself. And this was when games were still coming in like 360 K floppy disks, or maybe, a 
you know, 1.44 meg floppy disk if you had the right system. So it was just too big. So what they ended up doing is they cut down uh, huge chunks of the script to make this game uh, and they released it, but it was kind of, um, it, it was a flop. It wasn't seen as especially good uh, because it had a lot of kind of, you know, fatal design issues in it. But in the last year, a group of students working with a woman named Dini Grigar, who has done a lot of preservation for um, early interactive tech stuff on computers, um, basically uh, got permission from the estate of Thomas M. Dish. He passed away about 15 years ago, I think, um, to basically try to recreate his original vision for the game. So they went back to that full script he wrote. And now with modern computers, we don't have for text games, right? Essentially, there's no limitations. Um, uh, you know, put a, put back in all the stuff that was cut, kind of updated the interface for modern computers. Um, and so again, it's 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 a weird, quirky game. It makes all kinds of bizarre design decisions that aren't things that a professional game designer would have done. Um, it's very idiosyncratic, but it's really cool that that finally, uh, that vision finally got realized, you know, 30 plus years later. So yeah. last thing, you have a blog, and you chronicle a lot of stuff on there. You have several articles about all kinds of subjects. And one of them, of course, is you know the history of text adventure games, which I assume is what your book is going to be based off those articles. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. Right, right. Yep. So what else can people find on your blog? You got any recipes on there? or? <laughs> I do not have recipes. Yeah, so um, I've done different things with it over the years. Um, uh, for a while, I did a kind of series that I called Moments Lost, which was basically about taking like an individual moment from a game and talking about it because mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of times if you're trying to review a whole game, there's just no time to get any, into any detail about any one particular part of it. So mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about like, well, like, what's one choice in this game or what's one you know, scene in this game and let's like really get into it. Um, but yeah, for, for 2021, I did, um, a series called 50 years of text games. That was the kind of conceit was, I realized that it was going to be the 50th anniversary of the original Oregon trail game, which the first version of that was uh, text only. Um, and so I thought it would be interesting to do something that kind of looked at that whole, you know, half a century basically of people making games with words. So, what the, the kind of thought I had was I was going to pick one text game from each year between 1971 and 2020, so 50 years, um, and do a kind of in-depth dive into it, you know, look at how it worked, why it was written, the context of the time it was written, um, because so many of these games are connected to, you know, the technology of their time or the, the kind of, you know, communities that existed at the time. Um, and yeah, that turned into this whole um, big project. It took a ton of research. Um, it's going to be uh, uh, coming out as in book form with kind of the final revised versions of all those articles and a ton of bonus stuff like there's maps and there's um, uh, timelines and bibliographies and a lot of, uh, I think it's going to be a really great kind of reference book for people interested in that kind of game. How do folks find your blog? So if you just search, do an internet search for 50 years of text games, it should come up and that, that'll have, um, uh, you know, pointers to, to um, all the articles are still um, available. But if you're interested in the book version too, you'll be able to find out how to, where you can get that. AaronAreed.net is, uh, is my, my website and it's the, the same on, on Twitter also.
If you're still in a game in mood, you might give In the Corner Back by the Woodpile episode 40 a listen, where we talked to the president of Blackgate Games about how his life was transformed by the early RPG Ultima. Then there is 63, where Joe Torrey tells about acquiring an Amiga computer as a child and eventually working for that very company as an adult. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or podbeam.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs) 